everyone, thank you for coming. Um, if you have a Bible there, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, and verses 18 to 36. That's Luke, chapter 9, reading for verses 18 uh, through to 36. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these signs, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing, clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with them, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with them were heavy with sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days, anything of what they had seen. And we trust God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. This passage which we've just read contains this extraordinary event called the Transfiguration, which refers to the dramatic change of appearance concerning Jesus. In verse 28 of our reading, Luke tells us that this Transfiguration took place eight days after a number of sayings. Luke obviously wants us to connect these sayings with the transfiguration of Jesus. So before we look at the transfiguration in verse 28, we want to first of all look at those uh, verses that goes before it, verses 18 to 27, which provide that essential background in helping us to understand this spectacular event that happened on, t- on the top of the mountain. So verses 18 to 27 um, can be presented as having four sayings. 
We have Peter's confession, verses 18 to 20. Jesus speaks of his death, verses 21 and 22. Jesus teaching on what it means to follow him, uh, verses 23 to 25. And finally, a promised foretaste of coming glory, verses 26 and 27. So Peter's confession, verses 18 to 20. Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowds say I am? The disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others says one of the prophets of old has risen. Then Jesus said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. That is, you are the anointed one, the promised Messiah. You're the one that we've been looking for and waiting for. In all of the Gospels, the kingdom of God is a prominent theme. In fact, we could say that it absolutely saturates the Gospels. In our, in our reading, we, it was mentioned in verse 27, when Jesus said to the disciples, Truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In chapter 9 alone, if we go back to verse 10, we see the kingdom of God is mentioned. And if we even go back a couple of verses more, a few verses more to verse 2, again, the kingdom of God is mentioned. And if we go forward in chapter 9 to verse 60 and verse 62, and there again, the kingdom of God is mentioned. So it is a prominent theme within the Gospels. We can trace its origins back into the Old Testament, the verses like Psalm 103, verse 19, which says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And we can uh, hear and we can grasp the meaning of the basic meaning of, of the word kingdom, which is basically God's rule. That's the core of it. His rule, of course, is not merely over the vastness of the universe but his rule is also over a people belonging to himself. And for God to have a people to rule over as king, it implies that he is also a saving and redeeming God. His kingdom is now present in our world today. He rules in the hearts of his people, having established it through Jesus, the promised Messiah, who died upon the cross and rose again and is now seated in the highest place of authority. But that's not all, as we know, because one day he will return again to complete and finish everything else that he had promised to do. He will establish a new heaven and a new earth, and those who know the Lord Jesus as their own personal Lord and Saviour will be part of it. But from Peter's perspective, things are totally different concerning the Christ of God, the promised Messiah. If the question was asked, what is the kingdom of God? The vast majority of Jews was said something along these lines. We have an expectation. God acted in the past on behalf of our nation. He delivered us from the oppression of the Egyptians through his servant Moses. And we are expecting God to act again. To provide another liberator like Moses, who this time will bring us out from underneath the oppression of the Romans. This anointed one of God, the Messiah, will be a descendant of David, an unstoppable leader, and he will overthrow the Romans and establish our nation. 
Israel will not just become a self-governing nation again, but a dominant nation, a nation above all other kingdoms. And our king, God's anointed, will rule. And we will worship the Lord our God in the temple at Jerusalem. And the law of the Lord will be sent out from there to all the other nations. And they will be converted. And they will worship and serve the Lord too. They will beat their swords and the plowshares. And their spears and the pruning forks. God will establish his kingdom. And heal our broken world. That's our expectation. We are waiting, longing for and looking for the coming Messiah. That would have been the widely held position among the Jews at the time of Jesus. Messiah was not only a spiritual leader, but also a political and military leader. Jesus speaks of his death, verses 18 to 20. Following Peter's confession, Jesus immediately foretells of his death. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Sooner or later, the wrong understanding of the Messiah's mission had to be put right and that time has now come. You and I, of course, understand the significance of what Jesus is saying and those words which he ends with, on the third day be raised. But Peter didn't understand them. We might find it hard to take in, but Peter and the other disciples couldn't figure it out. What on earth is Jesus talking about when he spoke about rising on the third day? Even though Jesus was speaking to them plainly, they could not process what he was saying because of their mindset and their wrong expectations of the Messiah. All that Peter and the other disciples heard was that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and that he was going to be killed. At that very moment, Peter's world fell apart. It's no exaggeration to say that he is absolutely devastated. This is the first time that Jesus tells them that he's going up to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed. They were left bewildered, completely confused. They probably thought that Jesus was veering off the path of establishing his kingdom. And we can sense the, the, the emotions of Peter. In Matthew's account... We're told that Peter rushes in and he takes Jesus aside and he basically unleashes his abhorrence of what Jesus had just said. Impossible master, that shall never happen to you. Jesus stuck to his position and firmly rebuked Peter. Peter and the other disciples were left shaken. Everything they were hoping for and everything that they had grown to believe now seemed to be in doubt. It kind of reminds us of John the Baptist, who once said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said it with such certainty and clarity. Later, as he watched how things were developing, probably not the way he expected, in prison, he sent messengers to ask, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Luke 7, verse 19. And how tender Jesus is with John's doubts. He offers him reassurance. Tell John you've seen not just what you've heard, but everything that you've seen. The lame walk, the blind receive their sight, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached. 
This account doubtless encouraged John's faith in who Jesus is. We might ask the question, how that reassured John that Jesus was the Messiah? Because they fulfilled everything that was written in the prophets, especially in the book of Isaiah. What it means to follow Jesus, verses 23 to 25. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. This too must have been hard for the disciples to take in, as it plainly implies that how Jesus was going to die. Sometimes we say or hear others saying, I have a cross to carry, and maybe referring to some kind of a burden or an illness. But when Jesus said it, it would have been referring to an illness. What Jesus said would have been well understood by everyone. To take up the cross always led to death. And that's what Jesus was pointing to, death. Because we know that the Romans, how they operated, they forced the criminals to carry their own crossbeam of timber to their own crucifixion. And there they were uh, nailed to it, lifted up and left there to hang on it and to die. To take up your cross and follow me always refer to death. It's about dying. It's not, of course, dying physically, because Jesus said, take up your cross daily. It's not something you can do over and over. You can't be crucified over and over. So Jesus is speaking spiritually, but he's still speaking about death. It's dying to self. It was absolutely surrendering yourself completely to God. And when we commit to following Jesus, we are no longer in the driving seat of our own lives. And God is. He takes that place. As we live our lives, we seek to live our lives in ways that please him. This statement would have made uh, would-be followers of Christ think twice as there is, is a cost in following Jesus. Following Jesus can bring, of course, opposition. It can bring about the loss of close friends, alienation from family, loss of job, or even the loss of one's life. And these are the realities that some are facing in our world today who follow Jesus. Of course, it doesn't mean that he will always, that that will always be the case. But the question is, are we willing, if need be, to suffer loss in order to follow Jesus? With the arrival of the Messiah, there was also the expectation that he would quickly subdue all opposition. But instead, Jesus is warning the disciples here that that's not going to be the case. That they too would experience hostility from the world. His call was not to take up a sword to establish his kingdom, but to take up your cross daily and follow me. He also promised a foretaste of coming glory in verses 26 and 27. We need not only to hear Jesus saying, take up your cross, but we also have to hear him saying that those who commit to him and surrender their lives to him will receive exceptional reward. In Jesus, there is eternal life. In his kingdom, it's the, it's the treasure of all treasures. It is a kingdom of glory. And the remarkable teaching in the scriptures is that those who follow Jesus will not only see that glory, but share in it too. In verses 27, Jesus makes this amazing promise to his disciples that some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. 
Jesus gets where Peter and the others are at. His first declaration that he's on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross was a great shock, caused confusion and doubt, dashed their expectations, caused them to be dismayed. It shook their faith, and he is mindful of it. He knew that they needed reassurance of who he was and to be strengthened, and what follows did just that. But it would take time for this great event to filter down into their understanding. And not everyone was present. It was only three, Peter, James and John. But they were to act as witnesses and to share at a later time what they had seen. By the transfiguration, Jesus is saying to, Je- Jesus is saying to Peter, Yes, I am the anointed one, as you believe. And yes, I will establish my kingdom. But his nature is different than what you're thinking. I'm not here to set up a political kingdom. Jesus also makes it clear that the kingdom can only be established in God's way. Verse 22 says that he must suffer and that he must be killed. The transfiguration itself then, verses 28 to 36. Eight days after the sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James the top of the mountain to pray. It doesn't seem as if it's going to be a five or ten minute prayer time, but much longer, which wouldn't have been unusual for Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, we read that he prayed all night before choosing the twelve. It's not certain when the transfiguration took place, but many think that perhaps it took place during the, the hours of darkness, or it may well have taken place very early the next morning. As Jesus prayed, the disciples dozed off and fell into a deep sleep. And when they began to come round, they woke woke up to a scene of glory. Luke writes that while Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was changed and his clothes became dazzling white. His change in appearance reminds us, of course, of Moses, whose face became radiant because he experienced the presence of God. But the description here in Luke is different. With Moses, there's no mention of his clothes becoming radiant. The description here is one of glory shining out from Jesus, as if through his clothing. Jesus is presented as the very source of glory. In verse 32, this is clearly expressed. When the disciples came out of their sleep, it is said that they saw his glory. That is the glory of Jesus, in contrast to Moses, who reflected what he had been in. The identity of Jesus is what is in focus here. Jesus knew who he was, but his disciples needed to know without a doubt who he was as well. When the cloud appeared, it engulfed the disciples, and understandably, they were afraid. This was God drawing close to them and he speaks to them this is my son my chosen one listen to him it wasn't some thundering voice from afar but that cloud enveloped them and he spoke within it here was a closeness to God that they would never forget what was spoken is very similar to what we find spoken to Jesus at the time of his baptism but we can note some differences In Mark's gospel, at his baptism, the voice of God spoke to Jesus. 
You are my son. Here the voice speaks to the disciples. This is my son. Again at Jesus' baptism, God addressed Jesus as beloved. But here in Luke 9, he addresses the disciples from the perspective and thus calls him my chosen one. Followed by listen to him. All of this for the disciples' ears. What a clear declaration concerning Jesus. Peter in verse 33 was speaking when the cloud actually began to envelop them. Although it doesn't say that he knew what he was talking about, he kind of blurted something out. This is amazing. Let's stay here. Make three tents. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Needless to say, his suggestion wasn't really taken up. And they did the kindest thing possibly for him by completely ignoring him. Two features unique to Luke's gospel, which are well worth mentioning. One is mentioning concerning the prayers of Jesus, which is mentioned in verse 28, that Jesus went up the mountain to pray. And it was during that time of prayer that his appearance changed. This is a feature that belongs to Luke, not, not only in this particular passage, but throughout his gospel. He emphasizes prayer. For example, when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus when he was praying in Luke's gospel, and Peter's confession, it also took place in the setting of prayer in 9 verse 18. In the book of Acts, Luke continues to emphasize prayer. Acts 4 31 tells of when the disciples met together and after they had gathered and prayed, the place where they were praying was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. While we're not thinking, of course, something like this is always going to happen to ourselves each time we pray, that something like what Luke is speaking about here, we're not to expect that. But of course, prayer is to be valued and we can see his significance in, in the development of our relationship with God. Of course, more than some kind of cold mechanism, it's not just a means of coming to God and making our requests known, and then hopefully receiving our requests. But of course, prayer enables us to draw close to God and to experience his presence and fellowship with him. That will certainly transform us. Secondly, it's not only Luke that mentions the content, sorry, it is only Luke that mentions the content of the conversation. Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his departure, which was to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Many commentaries point out that the word departure in the Greek literally means exodus. So they were speaking about Christ's exodus. Moses, of course, led the departure of Israel out of Egypt during his time on earth and overseen the offering of the Passover sacrifice in order to save Israel from God's wrath. At that time, he wouldn't have understood all of the significance, but since passing into God's eternal kingdom, he has now long since discovered the fuller significance of the Passover lamb. Jesus is about to start his departure from Jerusalem, that is, his crucifixion, 
burial, resurrection, and ascension in order to save lost sinners. Elijah too, during his time on earth, uh, offered a sacrifice in order to win back Israel from her sin. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James and John are being educated that the death of Jesus was always God's plan for the Messiah. Not merely back to the time of Elijah or Moses, but prior to them. Evidently, Peter was a good student, as he later wrote in 1 Peter 1 and 20, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Peter was being brought into line with God's eternal plan of redemption. And Peter came to say that not only was Jesus meant to be a sacrifice, but that the transfiguration was also a foretaste of what the second coming of Jesus would be like. He writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the coming, referring there to the second coming of our Lord Jesus. For we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and we were with him on the holy mountain. Jesus is coming in glory, and how encouraging this glimpse of glory is to us as we lean upon Peter's eyewitness account. The transfiguration is to also strengthen our faith. Like Peter, we may also experience the odd meltdown, confusion, or even become dismayed. But we are to know for sure who it is that we look to and trust in and surrender to. Jesus, he is the Messiah, the chosen one, the glorious one. And when he comes back, we will be changed and be like him. No matter how unknown we are or how wearisome we feel, no matter how low-toned down we think we might be, there is a day coming when all who belong to Jesus will see him <clears throat> and be like him. We will shine gloriously like Jesus, as Matthew writes in chapter 13 and 43, saying, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.